rise for the reading of God's Word from Obadiah. We'll begin reading in verse 17 through the end of the, of the book. Hear now God's Word. But on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau shall be stubble, and shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. The south shall possess the mountains of Esau, and the lowlands shall possess Philistia. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captives of the host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. The captives of Jerusalem who are in Sheprad shall possess the cities of the south. Then saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Navigating successfully through life requires perspective. How we see things, the events of our lives and of the world, enables us to interpret what's going on. There is no better perspective than God's, and when it is His pleasure to show us what He sees or what He's doing, then it enables us to walk by faith. It enables us to believe Him because He knows what's going on and what's coming. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So, from the mountaintop, the the world looks very different than it does from the valley. We can see far, we can see wide, we can see behind us, we can see before us. In this section of Obadiah, as we come to the end of this short book, the vista is from the top of Mount Zion. No matter what's wrong with the world, God's plan is to make it right and to put it back together. This happened with the judgment of Edom, the descendants of Esau. It also happened with the completed work of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it's happening now as the gospel spreads through the ages and throughout the world. And it will reach its climax at the end of history with the return of Jesus and the completion of a new creation which began on Easter Day. Mount Zion will be the summit which rules the world and the Savior will exercise His kingship from there. In verses 17 through 21, God is still speaking to the Edomites knowing that his people are listening in, knowing that they hear, are also hearing his words. The international day of Yahweh will turn things right side up. And this will include deliverance, possession, and rule, rule for God's people. And as a result, the book ends by telling us that everyone will know and recognize that Yahweh is the universal king. This is a story that repeats many times through history. And it's also the the arch story of all of humanity 
It is our story. It is the story of the church. It is where we're headed. And so as we read these words, we read them historically. We read about this particular situation between Judah and Edom, Jacob and Esau. But from that, we are to draw an implication, an application that comes to us as the people of God. When we're discouraged, when it appears that our enemies are getting the upper hand, they seem to have all the headlines, they seem to be making all the advances, and we seem to be being ignored or abused or mistreated in some way, the story stays the same. God is still on his throne, God still rules, and God is still going to direct the outcome. Deliverance and victory are set before us in verses 17 through 18, and we're going to go through this verse by verse today fairly quickly. Uh, and then in the, in the next few weeks, we're going to come back and look at some other applications of this book. Matthew Henry summarizes verses 17 through 18 like this. Mount Zion is the gospel church from which the New Testament law went forth. Isaiah 2.3 Their salvation shall be preached and prayed for to the gospel church those who added... Those are added who shall be saved, and for those who come in faith and hope to this Mount Zion, deliverance shall be wrought from wrath and curse, from sin and death and hell, while those who continue afar off shall be left to perish. The gospel church shall be set up among the heathen and shall replenish the earth. Again, we have a microcosm, if you will, a small version of this story with Edom and Judah. So verse 17 begins, but on Mount Zion, as he's already talked about the destruction of Edom, on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance. Mount Zion was the original name of the mountain in Jerusalem that once, uh, that once captured became the city of David. This name was soon applied to the whole area of the temple that was built by Solomon, and then it was applied to the city of Jerusalem and finally, it was applied to the people of God since that was their home. Therefore, Zion combines a number of ideas, but primarily refers to God's holy dwelling place where he meets with and protects his people. It's a mountain that represents the kingdom or the rule of God. You'll recall that Edom made every attempt to ensure that there were not going to be any survivors of, or escapees. They were rounding up the people of Judah as Babylon was entering the city and some were trying to escape. They were turning people in. They were capturing people. They wanted to make sure Judah didn't make a comeback. It was a remnant of his people who would come forth, though, in ultimate victory. In fact, the Bible is full of these kinds of stories. I like to say, uh, uh, defeat, uh, victory uh, disguised as defeat. Isn't that the ultimate story of the cross? It looks like we lost. It looks like we're defeated. It looks like there, there's no hope. God loves those situations. And then here he comes. Surprise. He's still on his throne. This is easy for him. Verse 17, again, the second part, and there shall be holiness. 
In other words, there would be a sanctuary for the people of God. The house of Jacob, he says, shall possess their possessions. Remember, Edom had been looting uh, Judah and taking their possessions. And God is saying, the story's not over. They're going to actually possess what you possess. The word possess, uh, has a le- in the legal context, means to inherit. In this verse, we see that the people of God, that is the house of Jacob, will dispossess or conquer or subdue the sons of Esau, Edom. They're going to take back from Edom and from others what had been taken from them, and uh, there will therefore co- they will come to receive their full possession and inheritance. This is what God's saying. Don't worry about it. Yeah, but they're getting our stuff. Yeah, but they're getting this and they're doing that. And God says, trust me. The house of Jacob, he says, shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. The northern kingdom, which ended with the destruction of Samaria in 722 B.C. and the exile to Assyria from the from which none returned, was sometimes referred to as the house of Joseph. We see this in other places in Scripture. Jacob might represent the southern kingdom or the whole people of God from the twelve tribes as it does in Psalm 22. Commentator David Baker put it this way, in either case, all of the tribes, those previously exiled by Assyria, and those who are now taken, remember Judah, the southern kingdom is now being taken by Babylon, Babylon, will be involved in Edom's judgment, where all twelve tribes of Israel will be represented. God can do more than one thing at a time. He's dealing with the northern kingdom, he's dealing with the southern kingdom, he's dealing with Babylon, he's dealing with Edom, he's dealing with all the nations. God says, I've got the whole chessboard covered. In other words, already within the Old Testament period, the thought had emerged that those who returned from the southern kingdom either brought with them or represented those of the northern kingdom so that the reoccupation of the land was a reuniting of the divided kingdom. Now this, this phrase here, a fire and a flame... Remember, God's holy presence is like a fire, but it's not always a sign of his wrath. Remember, he doesn't consume the thorn bush. And also on the day of Pentecost, he doesn't consume his people. Rather, he empowers his people. Nevertheless, when God's holiness meets wickedness, it is totally consuming. It is the judicial destruction of the wicked that's being referred to here in verses 18 through 21. He says, Joseph and Jacob are fires, are flames, and what does he say of Edom? They're stubble. What happens when you bring those two things together? Who wins? It's easy. But the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them. Verse 18. Stubble is light. It's very consumable. So again, this is easy for God. When people who were made for glory, that is brightness and heaviness, rebel, they become like chaff, which are like hay and stubble that are only fit to be burned. There really is no good use for them other than that. And no survivor, he says, shall remain in the house of Esau. 
Edom had tried to crush Judah but failed. Now Israel will crush them. Remember, this is the story of God's people in the world. This is, don't miss this point. This is our story. Then it was true, and now it is true. Malachi 1, 3-4 indicates that the judgment of Edom has, fall, has fallen, yet some individual Edomites remained alive. So it's not every single individual. There were those who were left, I'm sure, to be testimony, to give witness to what God had done. Obadiah 21 implies that some Edomites will live under the righteous rule of God's people. But all of this prefigures what will happen in the New Testament with the advance of the gospel. As the flame and the sword of the Spirit goes forth, wicked men are conquered. Enemies are converted and turned into friends, if you will, or allies who are brought under the people of God. That's happened to many of us. We were headed this way. We were opposed to God. And God conquered us with the gospel. And he brought us in. We're no longer enemies. We're under the rule of Zion. Verse 18. For Yahweh has spoken. When we see this phrase, we should remember that when God speaks, it's certain. How many promises are there in the Bible? How many warnings are in the Bible? Every one of them is certain. Even when the circumstances seem unlikely or are impossible, what does the Bible say? What's impossible for man is possible for God. It's easy for God. He created all things in the space of six days with His words. So, all it takes are more words to bring it down. And so He will bring down Edom and He will deliver and restore His people. Let there be light, and there was light. Now the main point Verses 19 through 21, the main point of these verses speaks of God's people, present and future, who shall possess the territory that God has promised them. Again, Matthew Henry makes this observation. The promise here, no doubt, has a spiritual significance and had its accomplishment in the setting up of the Christian church, the gospel slash Israel in the world, and shall have its accomplishment more and more in the enlargement of it, and the additions made to it till the mystical body is complete. In other words, God's kingdom, like leaven, is growing and spreading and filling the earth. Where is the church today? Where did it begin? Where is it now? It's all over the place. The last three lines of the book feature three of the key images of the book. Verse 21 says... Then saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdoms shall be Yahweh's. This is the climax of the book. God's people are where they should be. Where? Ruling from Mount Zion. The Edomites are where they should be. They're under the rule of God's people. 
And Yahweh is what he should be, that is, the undisputed and acknowledged king. This is how the story always ends. One commentator summarized it this way, what is envisioned is not in the end primarily the national superiority for Israel, but the universal rule of God as king, removing from his domain all the evil which opposes him and thwarts his purposes. He will eradicate all that which Edom and the nations could be seen to represent and of which they were symbols. Another commentator put it this way, Obadiah is a kind of response to the message of lamentations with its fear that Yahweh had abandoned his people. You ever feel abandoned by God? Where is he now? I need him right now. C.S. Lewis talks about that uh, when he, in the death of his wife and he felt that abandonment. Later he would say, it turned out, he said it wasn't God that had abandoned him, but he that had abandoned God. But we often feel that way because we don't see what's happening. We don't see the big picture. We don't have the right perspective. That's why God gave us the Bible. That's why he gave us these stories. So that we could see how he works. Continuing with his quote, it reaffirms that it is truly Yahweh who is in charge of what occurs on earth and who will in the long run take steps to reestablish his sovereignty. God is not to be evaded. But his intention is ultimately to establish a new world order characterized by peace, though also by the predominance of his chosen people. Verse 21, then Savior shall come to Mount Zion. The word Savior, Yasha, relates to the word from which we get the names Joshua and Jesus. Saviors are those who save or who bring about deliverance. For example, Judges 3.9, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer, same word here, for the children of Israel who delivered them. Another great example is found in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 27, which describes the heroes at the time of the judges. Therefore you delivered them, saved them into the hand of their enemies, uh, handed them over, who oppressed them, and in the time of their trouble... When you cried, when they cried to you, you heard from heaven, and according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hands of their enemies. That's what Jesus does for us. He's a deliverer that saves us from the hands of our enemies. And so the headquarters for the kingdom, the capital city of God, the people of God, will be back in their hands. From there, they will rule over those who had previously been their worst enemies. And so the elevation of Mount Zion to the center of the renewed and righteous world is similar to the ideas that are found in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Listen to this. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And we're talking about Judah and Jerusalem, Mount Zion. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. It's the center. 
Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people, and shall beat their swords into plowshare. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. This post-millennial hope. This is our story. This is where we're headed. The conquering of Zion leads to the ruling of Edom. In in the battle of the mountains, Zion wins. This will not be a vindictive rule. The word judge carries the idea of righteous rule and godly administration. God's people will govern Edom with justice as representatives of Yahweh. And so in the end, even Edom will be benefited. Verse 21c, and the kingdom shall be Yahweh's. That's the very end of the story. The final conclusion of what will come about by the intervention of God, which will punish Edom, judge the nations, and restore God's people. Think about it. Isn't this what we just got through praying in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we pray for every week. Hopefully more often than that. We're praying that the Lord would repeat the events of the book of Obadiah. We want to be delivered from our enemies. We want the world to be made right. And we are asking Him to bring about true justice and true peace. We're calling for the world to be turned right side up And all of this so he can accomplish his righteous purposes. And as a result, we will live in his presence. We will inherit the promised eternal possessions and live under the sovereign rule of his king, Jesus Christ. Now, ultimately, we start out talking about perspective. Ultimately, this must be, this is our perspective. It's how we look at things. How we see what's going on. How we watch the news. Not chicken little. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. It's all going to hell in a handbasket. They're all bad. They're all evil. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? We're going to worship the Lord. You know what? He sits in the heavens and laughs. We should just laugh right along with him. That's our perspective. And so... I'm not going to get all worked up about all that. I'm going to pay attention to it. I'm going to do what we can. Work and watch and pray. But if the people of God at any, at any time are to enjoy deliverance, uh, possession, and rule, then it will be in our Savior Jesus Christ and through our relationship with Him. So how? Think about this. I want to close with this idea as we have come through this book. How does Christ now possess and have authority over every square inch of territory on the earth? 
or for the, in the cosmos for that matter. How does our story end? Have you gotten to the end of the book yet? Did you go ahead and read it all? And what implications does that have for you and me? All right, I'm going to close by reading uh, five passages of Scripture from, the, from uh, the New Testament that illustrate the answer to that question. How does Christ now possess and have authority over every piece of territory on earth? Matthew 28. And when they saw him, that is Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted as after the resurrection. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. John 13, 1-3. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come and that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already been put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. How much is in his hands? He's got the whole world in his hands. Romans 4.13 For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Who is the seed of Abraham that would inherit the world? Jesus Christ and all those that are in Christ. In Psalm 2, uh, when God said to his son, Ask of me and I will give you the nations. You think Jesus forgot to ask? And if he asked, do you think he got the nations? All of them? 1 Corinthians 3. 21 through 23. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours, and you are Christ, and God and Christ is God's. And one more. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things, every last thing, every last atom or molecule or quark, every last thing was created, all things that were created that are in heaven and are on earth. The whole cosmos, visible and invisible, Paul wants to be sure we don't leave anything out here. Whether thrones or dominions, in other words, all the political powers, the presidents and the kings and the queens and bureaucrats, all of those, or principalities, all the powers, 
All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. He has the preeminence. And in Him, all things hold together. All things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, every last thing, everything He's mentioned, every category, that in every last thing He may have the preeminence. Now how do you feel? No matter what's going on in your life, in the world, in the news, hearing this, we ought to all have a grand sigh of relief. Because he's preeminent. He's got this. And we're, we're in his hand too. We're part of his plan. We're his people. He loves us. He died for us. So let's pray. Father, in our narrowness and short-sightedness, we are often frightened by the circumstances of our lives. That fear can paralyze us. Grant us eyes to see beyond the moment, eyes of genuine faith. Help us to see what you see, to hear and believe what you have told us. And may we move forward with, the confidence, with confidence and joy, even in the midst of battle, knowing that the battle is the Lord's. As David prayed when you delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul, we too pray. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You saved me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So... Shall I be saved from my enemies? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In 2 Kings chapter 19, we have recorded for us Sennacherib's threat, Sennacherib's king of Assyria, and then we have Hezekiah's prayer. Listen to Hezekiah's prayer under the threat of Assyria. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went shaking in his boots. No. Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. The letter that Sennacherib sent. Then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim. You are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations of their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but were the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord, O Lord our God, I pray, save us from his hand, 
that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. God would answer that prayer. And here is part of what God had to say to Sennacherib. You can read the whole thing in 2 Kings 19, but I pulled out two of the verses. Here's God speaking to Sennacherib. But I know your dwelling place. I know where you live. (laughs) I know you're going out. I know you're coming in. And your rage against me. Because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears. Therefore, I will put my hook in your nose. And my bridle in your lips. And I will turn you back by the way which you came. And here's what happens when Jesus assumes the throne. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. And now, Lord God Almighty, our loving Heavenly Father, as we leave this worship service, may your oversight and power be pressed upon our minds. May we not lack deep thoughts of your all-encompassing providence. For while we acknowledge your strength, yet we often fear the slightest things. We frequently fear the unseen and the unknown more than your power. If we fail to believe and trust you, then we cannot pray or live or know your rich blessing. Neither can we glorify you without the proper consideration of your sovereignty over our lives and the world. May we truly come to trust you and to cast our weak and powerless selves into your almighty arms. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered for a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.